And open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Since this is uh, the third Sunday this month, we have a kids sermon today. And uh, kids, uh, I don't have much for you today. And that's because... What we're talking about this morning is not something that you guys like to do. How many of you kids like to take naps? Naps, not laps. Yeah, like take, taking rest in the middle of the day when your mom says go into your room and take a nap, right? That's not any fun, is it? Oh, we, got, we have one that likes it. Everybody else doesn't. Today we're talking about how we as God's people enter into His rest. And uh, I'll let you in on a little secret that this is something that grown-ups aren't very good at either. Uh, Some of us might like to take naps. I would put myself in that category. But we're still pretty bad at entering into God's rest and understanding what it means to rest in Him. And the reason why is because we want to be productive and do fun things and experience things. And we feel like when we rest, we're not doing that. But what the author of Hebrews is going to talk to us about this morning is that if that's who we are, if we're people that don't like to rest, then we're missing out on a big part of who God is and what he's done for us and what he's purchased for us in Christ. And so, uh, kids, number one, I would encourage you to take naps when your mom and dad tell you to take naps because there will come a time in your life where you would wish you had taken more naps as a kid. Uh, But more important than that, uh, I would encourage you to be someone who desires to know all of who God is, even the parts that uh, we're not as familiar with, and even the parts that maybe we're not as naturally inclined towards, which is all of them. And inclined is probably a really big word to use in a children's sermon. We don't like those parts as much. So that's all I have for you. Take naps, like them, and love God, and rest in Him. So let's read the passage, and uh, we'll jump into it. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through uh, 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, that it is living and active. That it is authoritative and that it is sufficient for all of our lives. God, we pray this morning that you would send your spirit to help us understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us about who you are and what you've done for us. And that we as your people, as, as those who have trusted in Christ, if indeed we have, that we would enter into your rest and learn what it's like to experience resting in you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for perfectly fulfilling your Father's plan and paying the penalty for our sins and freeing us from its power. Jesus, we thank you that it's because of you and what you've done that we can enter into God's rest. Pray that you would enable us to enter it by faith and that we would not be like the, the people that the author of Hebrews mentions in this passage who fall short by our own disobedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the main point this morning is that God has promised rest for his people and we must obediently strive to enter it. But before we get into the passage, I want to just acknowledge that this isn't going to be a sermon that most of us are going to like. The reason why is because we like specific things, concrete things, things that we can go out and we can say, this is what God's Word says to do, so I'm going to do these things. Even if we're doing those things in light of what Christ has done for us, we still like specific instructions. We don't like abstract things like enter into God's rest because that makes us work. We have to think about what it means to enter into God's rest. We have to think about this concept and how it applies to our lives because the reality is every single person in this room is different. And so we can't say this is exactly how you enter into God's rest because we're not all the same people. How I need to rest in God is different than how you need to rest in God. And so this is going to be an abstract thing that we need to wrestle with, we need to think about, we need to continually apply for the rest of our lives so that we don't be like those who fail to enter into God's rest. We need to strive to obediently enter into it. We are going to talk about some practical things, but the main practical things are going to be for you to go think about the abstract things, uh, which is good for us. So, this passage, like the rest of them that we've seen so far in Hebrews, begins with the word, therefore. Here he's connecting everything he's about to say to everything that he just has said. Specifically, he's talking about verse 19, which we finished on last week, where he says, So we see that they, they are the wilderness generation he talked about in the psalm, he talked about in the passage last week, they were unable to enter, enter into God's rest because of unbelief. So unbelief, fleshed out in disobedience, prohibited them from entering into God's rest. And now he's saying, because of that, therefore... Because they didn't enter, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you, that's his readers, that's us, should seem to have failed to reach it. So in this passage, he's going to make this kind of long, drawn-out argument 
proving what he says in the first verse. He says two things here. He says, number one, the promise of God's rest still stands. There's still an opportunity for his readers and for us to enter into God's rest. And he's going to spend the bulk of verses 3 all the way down to verse 10 demonstrating that from Scripture. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. And then he's going to come back and he's going to talk about why we should fear that we may not enter into God's rest. So he's got these kind of two halves of verse 1, and he's going to prove those with Scripture. So he says, the promise of entering God's rest still stands. He starts proving this in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that God's enter into that rest. So he's saying that people enter God's rest by faith, Then he brings up Psalm 95 again, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the people in the Old Testament didn't enter into it, but he's trying to show us that we still can. But what he says in verse 3 is kind of confusing. He says, quotes the Old Testament, he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then it says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. It was confusing to me how he was using the word although. Didn't seem to make sense. They swore, or I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that they didn't enter into his rest, even though, or although, the opportunity was still there. And he's going to prove this in verses 3 and 4. Although he finished his works from the foundation of the world. This is God. He's saying the rest opportunity was there because God was resting from his works. Look at what he says in verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Where is this somewhere at? Where does God rest from his works on the seventh day? It's a real question. Genesis, right? In the creation account in Genesis, we find out in Genesis 1 and 2 that God makes the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, God rests. So the author of Hebrews is saying that even though these people didn't enter into God's rest, God's rest was available for them to enter into because he had been resting ever since the beginning of the creation of the world. Ever since Genesis 2, God had rest and the opportunity was there for them to enter into. So God rested from his works on the seventh day. Verse 5, he says, And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter into my rest. So he is reiterating again and again and again that this wilderness generation, because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, they didn't enter into God's rest. But, despite that, there still is an opportunity for his readers and for us to enter into God's rest. This is where he goes in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he's referring back to Psalm 95 that we talked about last week. This is the big chunk of scripture that he quotes in chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We went back last week, we read Psalm 95, we saw that for like the first 60% of Psalm 95, David is just praising God for who he is and what he's done. He's just talking about how amazing and magnificent God is. And then he takes kind of a surprising turn to say, if you hear his voice, if you hear the voice of this amazing God, do not harden your heart. And we think, why would he do that? Why would anybody harden their hearts when they hear who God is and how amazing he is and what he's done for us? The reason why we would think that is because that's exactly what the saints did in the Old Testament. So he uses them as an example to encourage people towards faith and obedience and trust in who God is and what he's done. So he brings that up again, saying, 
Why would David say, today if you hear, your vo- hear his voice, do not harden your hearts if the opportunity of rest was gone? If that died with this wilderness generation, if God's rest was no longer available to God's people, then why would David take their story and apply it to the saints in the Old Testament? His answer is he wouldn't. It says in verse 9, For if Joshua, or verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, he's making this argument from the Old Testament, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. So he's saying, because of what Psalm 95 says, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, there still is an opportunity for rest for us to enter into as God's people. It's available to us. He talks in verse 3, as we already read, that we enter that rest by faith. That's how we get in. So the question is, What in the world does it mean to enter into God's rest? What does it mean for us to do that? Just like us taking a nap in God's name. In Jesus' name, I lay in my bed and go to sleep. In order to understand what he's talking about, we need to think about what it meant for these people to enter into God's rest. He's talking about He's using their story to tell us how we fit into God's story. And so for this Old Testament, these Old Testament saints, this wilderness generation, for them, entering into God's rest meant entering into the land. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means. That's what he says when he, they did not enter. They did not enter the promised land because of their disobedience. And so if we back up a few years, there's Abraham in the book of Genesis who God comes to and God says, see all this land before you. It's going to be yours. It's going to be your descendants. One day, They're going to be carried off to the land of Egypt. They're going to go off the land of Egypt, and they're going to multiply there, and then I'm going to bring them back into this land, and this will be their land. And I will be their God, they will be my people, and they will prosper here. That's what he tells Abraham. And then as you read the end of Genesis, what God said would happen is exactly what happens. His descendants start multiplying. There's this famine. You know, Joseph is already down in Egypt because his brothers sold him into slavery, but he gets appointed into Pharaoh's government. He prophesies that the famine is going to come by interpreting dreams, and then they start storing up grain because they know the whole world is going to need grain, and they will come here to get it. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob takes his sons and their families down to Egypt. And just like God told Abraham, his family grows and multiplies in the land of Egypt. And then... This Pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't like Joseph, becomes over God's people. He hates them. He starts encouraging people to kill their infants. He starts oppressing them in slavery. And then God redeems them. He sends Moses to uh, demand that Pharaoh lets his people go. We know that Pharaoh says no. And then there's the ten plagues, where ultimately God kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And the Egyptians tell the Israelites to get the heck out of their land. And they do. And then they change their minds. And they pursue them on foot. And then there's the Red Sea where God parts the Red Sea so that Israel can travel across in safety. They do that. They get through that. Then God closes the waters on their enemies and they're safe. And God tells them that this land before you is yours. It's flowing with milk and honey. You will live in houses that you didn't build. You will plant and harvest from vineyards that you didn't Build yourselves. You will reap from gardens that you didn't sow. It's this amazing land that's flowing with milk and honey. He tells them, this is yours. And so they say, okay, we're going to take this land, but first thing we're going to do is we're going to send in some spies. 
So they send people into the land to check it out, and the spies come back. And the vast majority of the spies say, this is not the land for us. Yes, it's amazing like God said it was, but the people there are huge. They have big armies. They have tall walls. They have sharp spears. We have no hope against them. But there's two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who say, yeah, let's go. Let's fight. We can take them. God said this land is ours. It is ours. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, the good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were united by faith with those who listened. Those who listened were Joshua and Caleb. They heard God's promise and said, it's true. Let's go to the land. Let's take it. But everybody else said no. And because of that, Israel travels around in the wilderness for 40 years. The entire generation that's there doesn't get to enter into the land. They don't get to enter into God's rest. And so God's rest for them meant receiving God's promise to them. It meant living in this land where all the work had been done for them by someone else. It meant they got to inherit what wasn't theirs to inherit. But because of unbelief, they didn't get it. For us, entering into God's rest is similar, but so much more significant. Because we don't get houses and vineyards and gardens and cars and wealth, health, and prosperity. We get his son who has done the work for us. The author of Hebrews told us in chapter 2 how he perfectly completed God's plan. He obeyed where we couldn't. He paid the penalty that we should have paid for our sins. We benefit from what he's done for us by faith. And we experience the truth of that promise even now as he's freed us from our slavery to sin. He's brought us out of the land in which we were enslaved. We get to experience that now and the fact that his Holy Spirit empowers us, gives us spiritual gifts so that we can live the kind of life that God calls us to. We do works that aren't ours to do with strength that's not ours. And of course, we're waiting for the day in which that promise will be completely fulfilled. Where we will go to a land that's even better than this one. Where God brings the new heavens and the new earth and everything is the way that it always should have been. That's what it means for us to enter into God's rest. So, the question is, how do we do that? I think he's already told us again and again and again that we do that by faith. We do that in trusting in God's promise. Placing our hope in that. For them, God's promise was kind of ambiguous. They knew it was the land. They knew that he was sending a redeemer, but they didn't know exactly how those things were going to come to pass. For us, we have the benefit of looking backwards. We can see their story. We can see God's story unfold across the pages of the Old Testament, how he sends the promised Redeemer, and his name is Jesus. And he's done everything that God said that he would do. He is making all things new. He is coming again to bring the new heavens and the new earth in their fullness. And so we enter into God's rest by trusting in his promises. 
think practically, we also enter into his rest by kind of recognizing who we are and, and how we relate to rest. There's kind of two extremes, I think. On some side, on one side, there's the people that just work too much. We, we do not rest from work. We're always working. Not just physically in this world, doing jobs, doing things, but spiritually. We're trying to do enough spiritual good so that we can feel like maybe God would accept us. And what we need to believe, how we need to trust in God's promise, is that we can't do any amount of spiritual good that will cause God to accept us. Only Christ can, and He already has. We need to quit our striving and our work and instead trust in His promises. On the other side, there's those of us who don't do anything. We don't work enough. Because we don't rest from work and we don't rest from rest. We have too much sloth in our life. There's those of us who think that, well, it doesn't matter what I do. right? I have rest in Christ, so I can do nothing. I don't have to obey. I don't have to walk in obedience. I don't have to live the kind of life that God called me to. I don't have to share the gospel. I don't have to come to church. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I don't have to do all these things because I'm saved by grace, not works. And so why bother with works if it's not what saves me? And the problem with that is it's some really good theology with really bad application. We're called to obey. He says, let us strive to enter into God's rest. To those of you who like to rest all the time, those two statements do not go together. Let us strive to enter into God's rest. Let us rest to enter into God's rest. Striving is part of the Christian life. Effort is part of the Christian life. The difference between saying I'm saved by grace and not saved by works is that we don't recognize that the works are a product of grace too. He's changed us. He's made us new. Ephesians 2.10 says that we walk in the good works that have been prepared for us beforehand. Our obedience was purchased for us on the cross. And so if we rest too much, if we don't work at all, we're not experiencing part of what Jesus has done for us. We're not living the kind of life that he calls us to, that he empowers us to, that he purchased for us. And so the reality is most of us are somewhere in between those two extremes. Some of us are really hard workers. Some of us are really lazy. But most of us are in the middle. We're lazy in some ways. We're workaholics in other ways. But the reality is that all of us need to rest more. And all of us need to recognize that we don't do this well. I think we think that we rest, but more often we just distract ourselves and entertain ourselves and comfort ourselves and call that rest or relaxation. Like I'm going to take Sabbath today, a, a day off where I don't do anything except binge-watch Netflix all day long. That's not rest. That's distraction. And it's an okay thing to do. I'm not saying entertainment's bad. 
Entertainment is one of the good things that God has given us in His creation that we should enjoy and be glad in. But if we have too much of it in our lives, it numbs us to who God is. It takes place of something that He is supposed to have in our lives. What we need to see is the value in rest. And the value in rest is in how the author of Hebrews describes it. It's God's rest. We rest because that's where God's at. And if we want to be with him, if we want to know who he is, if we want to experience more of who he is and what he's done for us, we've got to do it in rest. And that story in the Old Testament where God comes and he speaks to the prophet, like he's not in the frenzy. He's in the calm. And most of us are either way too busy working or way too busy wasting that we completely miss who God is in the quiet, in the stillness, in the rest that he's laid out for us in our lives. So, by faith, enter into God's rest. Spend time thinking about your life, asking the Holy Spirit to apply this to you and show you, how do I need to rest in my life? Where can I build margins into my schedule for rest so that I actually do it? The second half, of what he's trying to tell us here is that we should fear so that we don't fail to reach it because of disobedience. Verse 1, he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then he explains, for good news came to us just as to them. The point is, they heard the good news too. A lot of times we think, oh, well, we've got the gospel. They didn't. So, obviously will obey where they didn't obey. But he's saying here, they had good news too. They had the gospel too. It wasn't as fully revealed to them as it is to us. But they failed to have faith in the good news that was given to them, just like we can have or can fail to have faith in the good news that was given to us. So he says, we should fear. And this is a command that's given to the church. Let us Fear, lest any of you, lest any of us fail to reach it. Again, just like last week where we saw that we're all prone to disobedience, that it could be any one of us. He reiterates that again today. It could be any of us who failed to reach God's rest. So we should strive, we should fear so that that doesn't happen. And here, I think it's important for us to recognize how fear should motivate us towards the gospel. Because I think sometimes we use fear poorly. Like where we want to you know, scare people with the reality of hell so they choose Christ. They're not choosing Christ. They're choosing not hell. I think fear should motivate us kind of in the, the way that it would motivate a rock climber. Right? If you're going to go out and you're going to climb a mountain, you're going to check your ropes. You're going to check your carabiners, your harnesses, your, your knots. You're going to check all your equipment, because you know if you get up on that rock and something malfunctions, what's going to happen? You're going to fall. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to die. And so you make sure to examine everything, to know what you're doing before you go up on the mountain so that you don't die. But fear is not what motivates you to climb the mountain. What motivates you to climb the mountain is what's at the top. You want to get up there, you want to see the beauty that's at the summit. And so as you're climbing that rock, you're not thinking, oh, I've got to keep climbing because I don't want to fall and die. You're thinking, I've got to keep climbing because I want to get up there and see what's there. 
I think for us, with the Christian life, it's similar. Right? We don't strive towards obedience because we're afraid of what's behind us. We strive towards obedience because Christ is there. And we want to get there, we want to be with him, we want to be in the new heavens and the new earth, not because it's just going to be an amazing place to live, but because he's going to be there and he's going to be with us. So we should fear, because the danger of falling is real. And we need to recognize that it applies to all of us. But that's not why we strive towards obedience. That's not why we strive to enter into God's rest. We strive to enter into God's rest because that's where he is. And so I would encourage you today, uh, in light of this passage, to spend time thinking about how it is that you need to enter into God's rest. Not in a, you know, liberal, like, well, how does God's word apply to me kind of way? I can understand it however I want. No, the application is enter into God's rest, but figure out how that applies to you. And also, recognize that we should fear. Fear should motivate us towards obedience. But it should motivate us because of our desire for and affection for Jesus and who He is and what He's done for us. And so, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to spend time thinking about those things. Spend time asking God to apply His Word to your heart in a way that only He can. And then as you take the Lord's Supper, as you celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you recognize that it's a reminder that he's died for us. Also, remember that the Lord's Supper is a reminder of what's coming. There's a day coming when we will eat from a table that we didn't prepare. It's laid out for us already. The only thing we have to do is we have to walk by and pick some food up off it. And then the food and the meal will be much better. It will be a bountiful feast that I think, again, only represents a small picture of the magnitude of what Christ has done for us, of how he's provided for us a way of redemption. So let's pray. Dan will come and play. And then whenever you're ready, go and take the Lord's Supper and return to your seat so that this can be a time of worship for everyone. Father, I thank you that you are good and that you are orchestrating all things for your glory and our good and that we can have rest in you because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to see the ways in which you desire us to rest more now in anticipation of the rest that we will experience later with you. And I pray that you would help us to believe that the danger of falling is real. That it wouldn't cause us not to trust in you and the fact that you assure us of our salvation in Christ, but instead it would motivate us to strive towards obedience. Pray that as we, as a body, celebrate what you've done for us in Christ, that we would remember and recognize that it's a symbol of what you've done for those who have trusted fully in him. And that it points toward 
how you're going to complete his work. Pray that you would move in us and do the work that only your spirit can do in our hearts.